Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. Hey guys, uh, this episode is slightly different from what we normally do. Uh, this is a recording of a talk I gave earlier this week as part of Stumptown Stories. Stumptown Stories is a Portland, Oregon history collective. We're a group of writers and podcasters and history communicators and popularizers and some academics as well. And every second Tuesday, we meet at an art space, the Jack London Bar in downtown Portland, Oregon, and we talk about something related to Portland or Oregon or Pacific Northwest history. Uh, This past week, uh, I talked about something tangentially related to Portland and Oregon history, something that's more related to Minnesotan history, uh, Oregon Trail, the video game. Uh, I played it. uh, You might have played it. A whole generation of kids uh, played this video game about being a pioneer uh, when they were growing up, and this is the story behind that video game. Uh, The audio quality is off slightly. It's a live event and such is life, but I still think it's totally and completely listenable. Enjoy. All right, so (laughs) I learned a lot when I was in elementary school and middle school and high school, but if somebody were to ask me to very specifically recall what I learned in specific classes, I would not be able to do that. Um, I like to think of myself as the grown-up version of a good student, but honestly, I don't know what any of my history teachers said to me. And, you know, chemistry, physics, hard sciences, that's straight out the window. But I do remember, as an elementary school student, having extraordinarily strong emotions, having feelings of suspense and anxiety and triumph behind a computer playing a game that shared the name of my home state, Oregon, Oregon Trail. And I think you did too, right? I mean, that's why you're here tonight. I don't think there's anybody in this room who's going like, Oregon Trail, what's that? Please tell me about what this thing is. Oh, Oregon Trail was a game where you took on a role of various pioneers in the late 1840s trying to go from Independence, Missouri to the glorious and bountiful Willamette Valley, where we are literally sitting right now. And in that game, you could take on various roles. You could be a banker, you could be a farmer, or you could be a carpenter. Um, the banker had a lot of money, the carpenter had like no money, and the, farm, uh, the farmer had like no money, and the carpenter had like a little bit. Um, and when I was growing up, I was almost as obsessed with this thing as I was obsessed with Mario, because beating it was not enough. Beating Oregon Trail as a banker and you have two people left alive is easy. That's fine. <laughs> Beating Oregon Trail as a carpenter and you have like, yeah, you're the only one left. That's also not satisfying. I really, really wanted to beat Oregon Trail as a farmer with the entirety of my party still alive and not, not just alive, but also healthy. <laughs> I never ever, ever did this. (laughs) To this day, even thinking and talking about it with you, I want to go home, I want to crack open a DOS emulator, and I want to sit down and try to make this happen. 
And I know that this is an unhealthy urge. It's like the completionist urge, trying to get all the Pokemon or the achievements. But I still want to do it. I want to get 100% on Oregon Trail. I want to get all the achievements. And I think that Oregon Trail was brilliant because, one, it's like just great. The story behind this piece of software is amazing. But also, it is very, very effective as a game. Like, a lot of people have a great deal of nostalgia for it. But I think a lot of people forget that Oregon Trail is, in fact, a very, very good, like, game that you can play. So tonight, um, I want to tell you about Oregon Trail and where it came from and what I think is effective about it. So Oregon Trail was the work of three people in general and one person in particular. Um, in particular, there was a guy called Don Rowish, and he was a student teacher. And he was a student teacher in the Minneapolis school system, and it was his job to teach eighth graders. Now, I can tell you that my father taught middle schoolers for 30 years, and middle schoolers are um, insane snot beasts that are filled with hormones and are constantly trying to kill each other. So I imagine that Don Rowish's uh, experience as somebody who was in his early 20s and being plunged into this environment uh, must have been a trying one. Uh, the other two guys who helped make Oregon, Oregon Trail were Bill Hinneman and Paul Dillenberger, and they'll come in briefly later. But Rowish, as a student teacher, to get his students' attention, he decided to bring a bit of uh, pizzazz to his classes. So instead of just lecturing, instead of just doing, you know, book things, uh, he would do things like dress up as Meriwether Lewis. And he'd say, hello class, I am the Lewis of Anne Clark fame. Uh, how are you? Uh, let me tell you about my wonderful experience. Yeah, we can talk about, you know, Clark and Chicagoway and all those other people. And he would be there like in Pioneer Garb. And he also didn't just want students to read about uh, Westward Expansion and, you know, Pioneer Times. He also wanted them to have some kind of engagement with it. So, Rowish played D&D &D with his kids. <laughs> what he did is that he had a big piece of butcher paper, and he, measured, he drew a map on it, um, put various landmarks all over the place, and he had his students um, move a little marker symbolizing their wagon, their party, and have it go from place to place to place, from Independence, Missouri, to the Willamette Valley. And along the way, they would draw cards representing different things that could happen to them. They would also roll dice, which represented their skill uh, at certain activities such as wagon repair, or hunting, or other things. So, and by the way, when I'm saying he was playing D&D with his kids, that's how he described it. <laughs> like, that's not something that I am flippantly imposing upon him. In talks that Rawish has given about Oregon Trail, he has described it as basically bringing a role-playing game into the classroom. So, yeah, the Oregon Trail, it was very much brought to us by a man who knows what Thaco is. Um, and Rowish, of course, was hanging out with other different student teachers. So he was a history guy. And he also had some technical acumen, but he knew two guys who were better at coding and programming than him, Bill Heinemann and Paul Dillenberger who were, again, also student teachers, say that uh, been seniors in college together. And he says, hey, I have this game. The kids are really into it. And they said, you know what? That could be a computer game. So 
they decided to get together and turn this pioneer D&D into what we would now call a computer game or a video game. Except, at the time, there was no video about this game. Because the computers that they were working with were not like the tiny handheld computer that I have right here, right now, or the thing that's on your desk at home. Uh, we are talking about very large mainframes in climate-controlled rooms that you would have to call into with a telephone. Yeah, here. And they decided they wanted to make a game for one of those. So, uh, they did, and they wrote the original code for the first teletype version of Oregon Trail in about 10 days. Like, wow. this is three nerdy guys in the 1970s sitting down and inventing Oregon Trail in about 10 days. So, the first version of it, before there were wagons, before there were oxen, before there were things that you could see, it was kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure novel that would spit out of a teletype. It would ask you questions. Ask you questions like, do you want to eat one, poor, uh, one poorly, two, moderately, or three, well? And then, you would, and then you would type something into it, and it would say, okay, and it would crunch those numbers. Uh, also, believe it or not, this original version of Oregon Trail did, in fact, have hunting in it. And you might think, how can there be hunting in a game without any graphical capabilities? How can you um, constantly move the little guy around and have him shoot at the buffalo and deer and the rabbits and stuff? Well, this is what you did. When you were hunting, you had to type out bang or pow or something like that very, very quickly. And students, they were evaluated both on speed, how fast that they wrote bang or pow, and also accuracy. If they made a typo, they didn't go back to the wagon with any buffalo. <laughs> so he stuck a typing challenge into there. So the first game of Oregon Trail that we know of was played on December, the first, I should say, computer-based game of Oregon Trail that we know of was played on December 3rd, 1971, in Dan Rauch's eighth grade history class, and it was a hit. Um, this teletype game, with a bunch of, you know, texts and such, was drawing students in, and apparently they also would show up to his classroom both early, and they would stay late, so they can spend some time with these this thing. So even back in the days of it just being text, I guess those students still had that kind of completionist urge. They wanted to get all the Pokemans. They wanted to get 100%, they wanted to do all the achievements, and I feel for them. So Don Rawish, he was a student teacher. Um, he was still in training when he had this class. And so after he was done with his uh, term with these Minnesota public school students, that was basically it. And Oregon Trail, that had been a, you know, kind of cool teaching tool, and he had to delete it from the computer that he was using. So before he deleted it, fortunately for video game history, he printed the entire thing out. He put it... He rolled it up, and he brought it home for him, home with him. And also, I am not making this up, and I respect how nerdy and dorky this guy seems. Um, he referred to the rolled-up version of the original Oregon Trail code as the Scroll of Legend. Yeah. And after 
he brings this thing home. Uh, it just kind of sits there um, at his home for about three or so years. And even though he was a student teacher, Rawish, unfortunately, did not realize his dream of actually being a teacher. Instead, he got a different job in education. At the time, Minnesota was a bastion of progressivism in technology, especially education technology. And Minnesota had created a state entity called the Minnesota Education Compute, uh, Computing Consortium, MECC or MEC, which is a set of letters that I think is going to be very familiar to a lot of people here, because you probably saw that thing when you were booting up Organ Trail or Number Munchers or whatever. And you remember Number Munchers and Word Munchers? You had to bite down on multiples of 20? Yeah. You know what I hated about Number Munchers? Any other thing where you had to divide? I was not good at dividing when I was like eight. Anyways, uh, MECC or MEC. I'm just going to call it MEC. It sounds like it's a Gundam or something. Um, they were on the cutting edge of putting computers in classrooms and getting the students to actually know what these newfangled Alan Turing thingies actually did. Uh, Rawish had gotten a job with MEC as an administrative assistant. So he was really the lowest ranked guy there. And Mech was thinking, what pieces of software do we have to encourage engagement in the classroom with students? And he said, well, I have something. And he offered this piece of educational software, this simulation, uh, to Mech. Now, one problem, Organ Trail is not something that they can just plug and play. Organ Trail is, again, the scroll of legend. So, what ends up happening is that Rawish, he gets this thing uh, out of storage at his home, and he spends Thanksgiving weekend of 1974 entering the code of Organ Trail manually into a teletype machine so that Mech could use it. And while this is happening, this is where Rawish actually does a lot of research and improvements on the first version of the game. So he noticed several historical inaccuracies with regards to distance uh, in the game. He fixed those. He also added way more encounters, such as, say, having a broken wagon axle or disease. Um, also, Rawish considered uh, how he was going to portray Native Americans in the game. So at that time in the 1970s, uh, Native Americans were still very much you know, the force of nature, the enemies, the adversaries in a lot of Western movies. And in a few interviews, he said that he didn't want to do that because in his research, he found that most pioneers on the trail did not actually find Native Americans to be hostile. They found just the opposite. They were actually quite helpful. There was a lot of crime on the trail itself. There was a lot of crime in pioneer days, but most of the people who would show up with guns and take your stuff were other white people. Um, so Rawish made the decision to not include Indian attacks in Oregon Trail, which I guess is nice and progressive of him. Um, but eventually in later versions, there were things like you know raiders, thieves, etc., who would demand your oxen or yeah. So uh, MEC, M-E-C-C, they are now in a position to distribute this thing statewide. And it is a huge hit in the middle and late 1970s. Uh, at the time, uh, MECC, MEC, 
they kept track of which applications were accessed by their state educational computers. And they found that in 1974, Oregon Trail, and again, we're talking about a thing that is text-based and you know, teletype and the like, uh, that was the single most popular program on our computers, except for the early version of email that was popular at the time. So, this is big. Um, and another thing that makes uh, MECC big is that at one point an up-and-coming computer company called Apple decides that they want to put in a bid to be the computer that's going to be in the classroom throughout Minnesota. Again, Minnesota at the time is on the cutting edge of technology in the classroom. And so what they decide is going to be very influential for other technology classrooms around the country. And another big bid was Radio Shack, which at the time was considered uh, hugely cutting edge. So I want you to think about that for a moment. An actual for real competition and bidding war between <laughs> Apple and Radio Shack and Apple's the underdog. Times, times have changed somewhat. So Radio Shack actually might have won that bid, but apparently their application got lost in a paperwork mix-up mix up because it was literally paperwork. Um, and Apple won out. So. Apple's computer, which by the way at the time would have been referred to as a microcomputer because it did not take up an entire room, uh, became the standard for, for MECC, for Mac. And that's great because Apple, because they would again be in sync with basically everybody else in the country very soon. Had they gone with Radio Shack, Mac would have bet on the wrong horse and their software would have not been nearly as influential. But they went with Apple, and because of that, their software eventually spread throughout the entire country. So, this is all chugging around pretty well. Uh, Minnesota is doing a pretty good job of bringing computers into the classroom. And in 1980, they get a call from Iowa. The state of Iowa, says to Minnesota, they say, hey, uh, you have this really successful educational software and this really successful educational computer program going on in your state. Um, can we get in on that? Uh, what do you want for it? Like, we just send us your floppies and we'll write you a check. So, MEC at the time, they're completely blindsided by this. They don't know how to deal with this and they kind of jokingly tell the state of Iowa, a uh, hundred thousand bucks. And uh, we'll send you some floppies, and if you want to copy them, go for it. And the state of Iowa says, that sounds great. <laughs> and what they do, what they do with that arrangement between Minnesota and Iowa is create a licensing program. So, the reason Oregon Trail was popular, and the reason a lot of other educational software out of MEC was popular, was because um, of how they distributed it. Now, they were not selling individual games in a box that school districts or schools or the like would have to buy. Instead, they were starting a licensing program where states or school districts could buy in. And once they bought in as a participant, they were in. And they could make as many copies 
of the disks as they wanted to. So we don't have accurate numbers on how many copies of Oregon Trail there were. Um, we think the prevailing guess is that it's about 65 million. But, <clears throat> but because the licensing agreement basically allowed for unlimited floppy copies, um, it proliferated all over the place. Uh, not just Iowa, but soon all over uh, these United States, and also to Japan and France, uh, of all places. So one uh, source I looked at for this was said that uh, Mech that would constantly get questions and queries from uh, teachers, and the teachers would ask, how is it, uh, they would ask how to do things, how to boot things up, how to like, you know, save games, blah, blah, blah. But apparently the most common uh, question that they got was, how do we erase the bad words off kids' tombstones? <laughs> um, so I've been talking about the proliferation of Oregon Trail, but I also want to talk about why Oregon Trail is actually a pretty good game and why it was successful in the first place. Anyone played Oregon Trail at all recently? I mean, I have. Okay, you have. How'd it go? Uh, aside from the, the graphics change, it was, it was still fun. You had fun? Yeah. Okay. Did, did, did you feel things? Yeah, actually. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I was back in, in like fourth grade. All right, excellent. So, a lot of game designers, when they're talking about how challenges work, they talk about um, a bit of rising tension, and then there is a peak of tension, and then afterwards there's falling tension, and you have agency. After the agency, where you can do whatever you want, you have more rising challenge, rising challenge, rising challenge, and then it falls, and then you have more agency. But the challenges get greater and greater and greater, and the amount of agency that you have the amount of absolute agency that you have gets less and less and less. Is this making sense? There was a chart. <laughs> <laughs> it sound, as a writer, that sounds like a six or a 12 act structure. Yeah, as a writer, it sounds like a six or a 12-act starter. Yeah. yeah, let's say at the start of chapter one, you have rising action and it spikes, and then at the start of chapter two, it falls. And then, you know, the baseline of chapter two is higher than the baseline of chapter uh, one. And then spikes at the end of chapter two. And then at the uh, end of chapter two, uh, you know, or start, end of chapter two, start of chapter three, it falls again. But again, the baseline of chapter three is still bigger than chapter two, and so on. Oregon Trail does exactly that. The parts of Oregon Trail where you are going with the wagon, and you have to make decisions based on how fast or slow you want to go, whether or not you want to stop and rest, and whether or not you want to hunt, all of those, ex and oh, and also how well you want to eat or not eat, all of those moments in between landmarks are when there is rising tension. People have typhoid or dysentery or cholera or whatever. Uh, you might be looking at the amount of food that you have and it's going low. You might be looking at the distance between you and the next landmark and you're worrying about the idea of you know, bad weather, losing a couple of days, pieces of your wagon, breaking, etc. That is that creation of upward tension. And then you get to Chimney Rock, or you get to the Blue Mountains, or you get to a fort, or the Dalles, and that 
is when all that tension goes down a bit and you have a bit more agency. You can buy supplies, you can trade, you can talk to people, you can do things within the game space that aren't necessarily uh, going to lead to your death. This is, a, this is a phenomenon in game design that pops up again and again and again. And either Don Rowish is some kind of uh, prescient genius with regards to the creation of tension and release, or uh, he did it completely by accident. Uh, I don't know which one, but he did it. Organ Trail was hugely popular for a reason, because it had this very basic game structure that it did very well. And MECC, Mech, they started making a lot of other different games. Games that you maybe played, and that I've alluded to already, like Word Munchers and Number Munchers, which are great. Um, also, Odell Lake, which is another game based on an organ thing. They, you, you played Odell Lake? Anyone else play Odell Lake? Yep. It was a great game where you played, I, you played as a fish, and you would meet other fish, and you would have to like decide whether to eat them or run away or chase them away at your competitors. Sometimes there was an otter or an osprey, and they would like eat you. Odell Lake was a great game that taught people about the circle of life, about how everything is food. And then there was a less successful game by Mech that they released in 1993 called Freedom! Exclamation point. Freedom was kind of like Oregon Trail in that it was about old-timey people on a difficult journey, but it was about students taking on the role of an escaped slave. Oh. Now, this is misguided. Let's call this misguided. Uh, gamifying, uh, Nintendoifying the experience of the Underground Railroad for a bunch of like little white kids in some suburban school district who are probably going to just treat it as like weird school Mario. Maybe not the best decision. And what was the date on that? 1993 is oh, the date on that. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was paid with good intentions. They did get African American historians to contribute to the content of freedom, yeah, no but one, it was, uh, it was no, pulled. Yeah. So yeah, freedom was pulled from the market. Um, then in 1994, there was Yukon Trail, uh, which was not nearly as well received, and by 1994, Yukon Trail, they're trying to do uh, much slicker graphics. Uh, they're trying to do fun things with like color and sound, and uh, Jack London was in it. Like, the guy this bar is named after was in, made an appearance in Yukon Trail. But in the late 1990s, Mech is still successful. Um, this company has had one big hit with Oregon Trail. And they've had a bunch of smaller, respectable hits with um, Odell Lake and Number Bunchers and Yukon Trail. Uh, then they had Freedom, but, you know. Just keep thinking of the George yeah. Michael song. The George Michael song is brilliant. Yeah. So in the late 1990s, Mech was acquired by new owners uh, in a hostile takeover. It was a company called SoftKey um, that came in, took them over, much to the chagrin of a lot of the creative team um, that were involved with them. And by this point, Don Rowish had left the company. But this big late 1990s takeover ended with a lot of the uh, coders, uh, coders and creators leaving the company. Uh, many of them fairly angry, angrily. 
Uh, after that, it is rebranded as the learning company, and the learning company still has a lot of the cachet of the mech of old, of the uh, late 1980s and early 1990s. And they're known as being the company that can really bring it with these games that the kids are really into. So, the learning company, it is purchased by Mattel for $3.5 billion. So, so, this is one of the most like huge overvaluations in the histories of like companies buying other companies because um, the learning company at the time was probably not worth $3.5 billion. Now, from perspective, um, Star Wars went for $4.2 billion. So, we are, we are saying that the company that makes the game about pretending to be in a Conestoga wagon is worth yes. most of a Star Wars. Yes. This $3.5 billion acquisition by Mattel uh, does not pan out well for them. At the time, again, a lot of the creative team, the lot of the coders and such, that were responsible for those games that were so popular had left, and they are not able to duplicate the success of Oregon Trail. They're not even able to duplicate the success of Odell Lake. And, and the investors in Mattel are not happy with this. Um, Mattel ends up selling off uh, the learning company for less than a tenth of what they originally paid for it. Also, <laughs> also um, the investors of Mattel for this bad decision end up, uh, the stockholders rather, end up suing the company for $122 million. Wow. So the last real version of Oregon Trail for a um, PC or a microcomputer that came out in 2001. Uh, after that, the intellectual property gets kicked around. Uh, currently, there is a thing called the Oregon Trail in the App Store. It's shitty. It is terrible. Um, yeah, uh, Rawish, creator of the original Oregon Trail, absolutely hate it. Hates it. Um, it has sold over 2.9 million copies, but it also has in-app purchases. So I know. So I find this horrible and supremely ironic that a game that was made by a guy who just wanted to educate kids, um, who dressed up as Meriwether Lewis, whose primary motivation was education, and then Mech, the big distribution entity, which had this very kind of like laid-back, proto-fair use, like licensing scheme where you could make all the copies that they wanted, well, that game that was so big for them has been corrupted by one of the most awful, in a, quote unquote, innovations of modern gaming, the in-app purchase. Amidst all of this, amidst various acquisitions, amidst uh, this thing getting turned into an iOS app, amidst, you know, terrible versions of it being sold, uh, yeah, you wonder how much did Don Rowish make? And in a Reddit AMA, AMA that he gave last year, somebody asked him, so, this thing has sold millions of copies. Um, you're probably, you know, Scrooge McDuck as fuck, right? And he says, quote, Actually, no, except that it led me to great jobs in the ed tech industry. When I brought OT to Mech, we were still five years away from the notion that there would be a consumer software market. 
Who knew that personal computers would emerge? We were more interested in sharing OT with other teachers and students. In another era, I might have my own island by now. Unquote. I know, I know, I feel for the guy. He kind of reminds me of um, Siegel and Schuster, who created Superman. And Siegel and Schuster, um, they sold Superman to Detective Comics for all of $130. Now, this is granted $130, like old timey dollars, so it's more of those. So it's like $500. Right. But, (laughs) yeah, so it's like $500, $600, whatever. Um, But still, the industry that they were working in, the medium that they were working in, had not been routinized yet. Uh, the way that you make deals, the way that you make sales, the way that you license things, the way that you collect royalties, none of that had really been invented yet. And what ended up happening is that the original creators ended up getting um, left out. So Rawash, he has done fine in ed tech and working as a consultant. Uh, Organ Trail is now a zombie of itself, but Show. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Yeah. <laughs> Rockefeller reunited recently. <laughs> but, but, the spirit of Oregon Trail lives on. This is what I want to get at. So, if we're talking about, you know, uh, all the money dollars Don Rowish has, or Oregon Trail being purchasable today, then I think that we are using the wrong metric. We are measuring it with the wrong measuring thing. Because Oregon Trail, it was never about making gigantic Mickey Mouseian piles of money. Uh, it was never about creating a proto version of Call of Duty or of Battlefield or of other successful games. Um, it was not about uh, doing that type of thing. It was about really. And I'm not being ironic or flippant here, teaching kids. So I opened this talk talking about how it was probably the most affecting and impactful part of my early history education. Uh, it worked. Uh, Don Rawish, he's this young teacher. He was invested in grabbing eighth graders, eighth graders, and making them pay attention. He was a guy who would dress up as Meriwether Lewis. He played pioneer D&D with his kids. Uh, he made a video game before video games were things, and he did it all to teach people. And it worked. It worked. He taught me. He taught me how essential little things like wagon wheels really are, how huge and beautiful and difficult the North American continent can be, um, what the hell a wagon tongue actually is, and he also, this might sound strange, he also taught me empathy for the people of the past. Um, And it can be hard to have empathy for the people of the past. Uh, They are not us. They are very, very much not us, and they are not like us. People from the past are like racist aliens who pooped in buckets. (laughs) But they were still people, and they still had struggles, and they still had priorities and goals, and Oregon Trail allowed me to approximately, very much approximately, um, embody them. And that sensation of embodying somebody who's not you, 
and extending your experience into theirs and walking around and being challenged and rising to the challenge as somebody or something that you are not. Video games are one of the only pieces of media that can do that. And I wish there was something that games did more often. Allow you to feel empathy via embodiment. But, back in 1971 with the teletype machine, uh, before anything else had happened, even Pong had happened, uh, at the very, very dawn of what is now one of the biggest mediums on Earth, Don Rowish did exactly that with Oregon Trail. Thank you guys very much. Folks, hope you enjoyed that. Um, if you are in the Portland area and you are curious about more of what Stumptown Stories does, uh, like us on Facebook. Just search for Stumptown Stories. And every second Tuesday at the Jack London, there will be me or somebody else similar to me uh, giving some kind of talk like that. This podcast, as always, we are an independent ad-free show. Uh, please do support us. Uh, go to interestingtimespodcast.com to sign up for a monthly donation. That would be awesome of you. Um, also, I love feedback. Uh, go on iTunes, give us a rating and a review. Uh, that iTunes feedback, not only in being, you know, fun to read from you guys, also helps other people discover the show. Uh, that would be great. Uh, also, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert. Um, I am on Tumblr, joestreckert.tumblr.com, and also on Twitter, at joestreckert. Thanks very much for listening. See you next week. Bye.